Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Guy Spear. Guy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We had some conversation beforehand, and most importantly, I was able to go and ready myself with a cup of not coffee, of English tea, so I'm very happy with that. And I'm glad to have you comfortable. And it's actually, speaking of talking before, the last time when we went to record, we ended up just talking for, I think it was an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Scary, isn't it? Well, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope <laughs> Absolutely. So did I. And I'll share a bit of how we met. Our mutual friend, Whitney Tilson, I believe is who put us in touch. He's been a guest on this podcast, I think four or five times. I see on the shelf behind you, Team Human and Doug Rushkoff, the author of that book, has been on the podcast a couple of times. And he's got a lot of books and I suspect you have a lot of mutual friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry the shelf below is not with, filled with books. It will get filled with books. That's a specific section. What you haven't noticed on the books, for those who are just tuning in on audio, is that they have, and I'll pull the shirt. So which one were you saying? Which book were you telling me about? So I'll pull it out. Team Human, on the left, the red and orange book, or orange and yellow book. On that shelf on the left, a little to your left of where your hand is. It's the farthest one on the left. So, Oh, this one doesn't have it. What you have here is you have a Library of Congress call number. Uh-huh. So as I continue to collect books, I have far too many, and most of them are unread. It's an anti-library, although most of them had been handled by me in one shape or another, in one form or another. It became more and more difficult to decide where to put them. And we went through various different systems until we figured out that actually what we needed was a library system, a catalog system. And for your interest, Josh, there are two main types in English. There's the Library of Congress cataloging system. There's the Dewey. There are some other ones. And we ended up going with Library of Congress. So what you had on the other book that I showed you and you see on those little white labels on the books is a Library of Congress call number. So but there's Doug Roshkoff. And literally, for your interest, any book that I kind of read about or that I come across that is written by somebody I know or just has some interest to me, then I just add it to my buy list and sooner or later it gets bought, it gets added to my anti-library. My anti-library just continues to grow. And for what it's worth, uh, it's actually online. So I have a, an account on this wonderful free website called Library Thing. Librarything.org It's free. And you can see all of my books there, every single one, including my wish list. So all 7,000 of them. Ah, now I have to check to see if my books are there. If not, then we'll see. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They better, they better be there. We could find out right now if you allow me to look. Yeah, and while you do that, I'll talk about your book. What got me to invite you is that, I mean, your book, well, here's a, a bit of bio about you. I'll just take the bio from the book if you don't mind hearing about yourself. Guy Spear has run the Aquamarine Fund for the last 17 years. An ardent disciple of Warren Buffett, Guy launched the fund with $15 million in assets, closely replicating the strike. Well, it's a bunch about you and investing, but I got to say, your book, it starts off with a guy coming off with his Harvard MBA, before that Oxford, and and yet starts off humble, which I think would be a lot of uh, difficult for a lot of Harvard MBAs to come off as, but even borderline humility, humiliating, if that's not too strong a term for what you where you came from. Now, since I went to Columbia Business School, as did Warren Buffett, and value investing, the value investing program there is really big. And I didn't do it, but I knew people who did it. And and also Graham, I think Graham of Graham and Dodd went there, or maybe both of them. So it had it has a long history there. And so I was very curious about it. And your book, actually, I just checked this morning. It's up at 
2,000 or more reviews on Amazon. So it's really getting a lot of traction. And oh, the title is very interesting, especially because of the last word. So the education of a value investor, my transformative quest for wealth, wisdom, and enlightenment. Yeah. A lot of people out there are going to be thinking, oh, an investor, one of those, uh, you know, just after the profits. And that's not your story at all. And I think you greatly want to bring what you went through to others and what you were able to learn for yourself and to show that there's something different than just going for profit. I don't think that's ever what you, well, maybe it was at the beginning, but uh, anyway, I was pausing while you, giving some background while you looked up if my books were there. Well, yeah, thank you. And uh, it turns out that it was not in my library, Leadership Step by Step, Become the Person Others Follow, but it is now on my wish list and so will be added to the actual library anon. I think you'll like so it. My apologies for not already buying it, Don. <laughs> well, it's my responsibility to have people know about it. No, it's, it's kind of a weird thing the way things get launched into the wild and then they have a life story that becomes separate. I mean, they're like children. So we don't take full responsibility for our children, especially when they come adults. So, and that's true of books, I think. So I'm in no doubt that, and it's wonderful that it's got 2000 reviews, but I'm in no doubt that at some point nobody will read my book, but that's okay. I've gotten, I've accepted that and gotten used to it. And, but just to, to your point, yeah, I, I do start the book in an extremely humble place. The first chapter is titled The Belly of the Beast, and it describes my experiences straight after business school, having, to having taken a terrible choice as to where to work, and which kind of trashed my reputation and working at a place that was really not a place that anybody would want to be associated with, in that it was... It took me a while. I was quite naive, but laws were being broken. I wasn't breaking the law, but laws were being, securities laws were being broken around me. And that was not a good thing. And you don't want to be around that. I know where I was when I wrote that chapter. I remember writing it. And I, I know where I was when I took the decision that this would be in the book, that I would write about this in the book. And I should say that it's cathartic to write about about the worst experiences in one's life. I mean, we Charlie Munger says, right? You know, rub your nose in your mistakes. It was a big career mistake that I made. And yes, you're absolutely right. The motivation in the book was to kind of explain the realities of how I'd gotten to where I'd gotten and the mistakes that I'd made and the things that I'd done right. And I was kind of sick of hearing people as I achieved just a little bit of success. I was kind of sick of hearing people sort of like assuming that success comes because you've been to Harvard Business School, let's say, or because you've studied at Oxford and I really feel like felt like that was not the root of my success. It didn't hurt, but and in some ways actually it did hurt. And so in another chapter, there's another chapter that's titled The Perils of an Elite Education. We all know about the positives of elite education, but there are significant perils attached to it. So uh, this idea or writing the book to kind of sort of set things straight with a public that maybe isn't aware. And as I started seeing some success, and reading business biographies, you kind of realize there's a huge slant to these business biographies in which the writers, especially if they're autobiographies, but even if they're not, if they're just straight biographies, often the biographer will want to leave out all sorts of parts of the story that are actually key to understanding it. And I wanted to put all those bits in, and I wanted to specifically focus on the weaknesses and the difficulties because that's where all the learning is. 
So I'm glad you picked up on it. And I'm sure that's part of why it's gotten so many reviews on Amazon. And, uh, you know, there's an element to the book of, well, if that schmuck can make it, then maybe perhaps I can as well. And that's, in a sense, the point of the book is to demonstrate that I'm, to myself and to others, that I'm human. And here are the real sources of success. And they have little to do with going to Oxford or Harvard, actually. I don't know if that's helpful in response to you. I hope it is. Yeah, I mean, this humanness, part of it, you also mentioned the laws being broken there. And to me, it was also, you didn't mention here, the culture. I mean, when I was reading it, I was like thinking of Boiler Room, the movie with, um, yeah. what's his name? And it there's seemed two, like there's, there's Wolf of Wall Street is one. Yeah. And uh, there is I'm, I'm blanking. There's the previous one, but it'll come back to me. The um, in any case, it literally, well, the firm was a boiler room. I was at the investment bank, but there was a boiler. Wait, room. Uh, so now I have to pause you because the building is doing some maintenance. So I'm going to go step and tell them to come back in a little bit. Can you hold on one second? Yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. So that's, uh, I live across the street from a firehouse and they test their chainsaw thing every day at a random time. Why do they, what are they testing? So it's, I asked them this once and I went up and I said, it's, it's these things to get through broken doors, through doors that are locked, even when there's a fire to set to get through in seconds. And I asked them, do you have to test it every day? And they go, and the guy says, well, it'd be a shame if we showed up and found out that it didn't work when we got there. And I said, okay, that makes sense. But what if it, if this time testing it is what broke it? Yeah. You don't know once you stop testing if it broke. And he looks at me and he goes, well, it'd be a shame if we showed up and it was found out it was broke. The exact same thing. And I realized he was basically saying, look, man, I'm a firefighter in New York. What I say, you know, we do what we want. <laughs> but then years later, I met this woman who was a firefighter. And I asked her the same thing. I was like, is there anything I can say to them? Because I don't think, how do we know that what, every day is the right frequency? And she had a different, she said it differently. She said, I would never want to start a shift not knowing, having used my equipment before my shift started. So I think it's also, it's not always the same firefighters every day. So I think they have to, when they start their shift, they have to know. You know as, as a friend of mine said about ambulance alarms and uh, fire engine alarms, it really makes the guy driving the fire engine feel really good, you know? And then maybe that's part of the role of the alarm is to make a bunch of people who basically sit around waiting to potentially put their life at risk. I mean, that's what they do. They sit around waiting to put their life at risk in the event that there's a fire. And every now and then as a 9-11, they lose a bunch of lives. So I think that perhaps the wise answer is we should just cut them some slack, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like a mile from ground zero. So... There's a plaque, and every year on September 11th, they have they get in their dress uniforms, and they honor the men who went into the burning building. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I have nothing but respect for them. Yeah, it's annoying when the alarm—not alarm, but the motor goes off. Yeah, and we just have to live with it. I have a friend who's very upset about the the loudness of sirens here in New York, uh, in New York, in Zurich. They're extremely loud, and there's a question about whether they have to be that loud. And the answer is, wait until it's your grandmother. Or wait until it's your wife, and then you'll be grateful it was loud as it was, you know? So Yeah, there was, on September 11th, 2021, on the 20-year anniversary, I remember looking out and watching them doing their service, and I was going to record my podcast. I wanted to record, and I just broke down in tears, just thinking of, actually, I'm getting choked up now, that um, they saw the buildings, and they still went in. I mean, no one knew they would collapse, but... They went in. Yeah, they did. It's, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, they didn't have to. Yeah. They could have just said, we're going to wait. And they went in. That was their job. They did their duty. So yeah. So if they have to test it, if they think that the best thing they can do is to test their equipment every day, then yeah. Yeah. You know. Should we keep this part in? I I think it's okay to suggest that maybe they test it in places or whatever. But they, you know, yeah. <laughs> of all the things I could second guess, I'll second guess other things before that one. Yeah, and I think that we can be aware that our take is not the universal take or we don't know where the optimal line falls. So mm. we have our own preference curve, to use a microeconomics term, of how we do the trade-off but we don't know where the aggregate preference curve of everyone is. And nobody knows where it is, but their estimation of the aggregate preference curve may be as good as ours. And we shouldn't assume that ours is the one that should be representative. So, but that's what politics, that's what politics should be about is public choice, public choice over things where there's a common that, you know, that everybody has a preference and the preferences fall differently. And how do you decide if it's a, if it's a marketplace, you have one way to decide through supply and demand and through a supply curve and a demand curve. When it's public choice, when then you have a little bit more difficulty. I think the reason why it comes up is that I just become aware time and time again of how well Swiss democracy functions in terms of aggregating up individual preferences to get. So the Swiss solution to that would be a vote in the building or a vote in the district. You know, should we or should we not have firemen test their equipment once a day? Here, they'd have a they'd have somebody do a study to show what the trade offs are, and then the population would vote. So I'm you're talking to me from an I'm in my office in Zurich, which is not far from a town square or a sort of like a a central area where trains go, but also there's a kind of a plaza called Bellevue, and we had a vote three or four years ago about how many days in the year should that public area be used for, should be covered over for community events. So there's a winter, there's a Christmas fair there where the whole thing becomes a kind of like a Christmas village. And there's a, there are other events. There's a circus in autumn, for example, which covers the whole square. So it can't be used. And I was one of the guys who voted for minimal possible. I really like it when it's open. And some people voted for as many as two, 300, 270 days, three quarters of the year that it'd be covered with other stuff. So and the decision came out, and now that's what it is, you know? So I think that, forgive me, we're very likely going on an extreme tangent away from what you wanted to talk about. We are. Yeah, so I'll stop. But I've been thinking to myself, like, should we leave this in? Should we take this out while also listening to you? But I think you talking about democracy and how participatory democracy and how it works out is, I think, relevant and also illustrates, and maybe part of what we were talking about, sharing yourself. Okay, so now people can see that uh, what goes on in my life, I mean, like, actually, and I can point out that he was supposed to come in and change the filter on my air conditioner. Yeah. But I think I may have mentioned to you before that I've disconnected my apartment from the electric grid. I'm now in my second year. So I haven't used the air conditioner in ever. I yeah. mean, not certainly not for years and years. And so he just came in, opened it up and like, okay, nothing to do here. And I went back out. So I was like, he didn't have to do anything. But that's like this inside view of what's going on. Although people can also see them wearing shorts and not wearing pants. <laughs> yeah. And well, that may just be Josh ADHD, you know? And so now through my son, I know what it feels like on the inside of my brain, but I now experience what it feels like from the outside when I observe my son at the family meal table. 
And I've become more aware of kind of when to detect it. So in a conversation that jumps from one point to another is kind of an ADHD conversation, if you like. So I'm going to give you two topics that I'm really interested in asking about. Yeah. One, both of what, what's just come up. On the topic of participatory democracy, I think that one big thing that I've been thinking about lately is many things could fit this bill, but I'll use billionaires who go up in rockets and see Earth from space. There's Now, they have the money to do it, and the regulatory agencies, I guess, in the United States allow them to do it. But everyone's affected by this, the pollution that comes out of it. But not everyone has a vote in this. And to me, this is not democracy. This is not democracy if people intricately affected by it Correct. Are, have no voice in it. Correct. So talking about it, that's something I've been thinking about. And since you brought up participatory democracy, that's something I'm interested in talking about. Now, here's another thing is you're most people. I know a bunch of people in finance and they tend to talk about things like what the interest rates are and financial things and things in the business world. And you don't, but you're successful. So why is, and I think that relates to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Monish and your education. Why is it that you sound different than most people in finance and yet you're successful? Either one of these sound interesting to you? Yeah, it's all interesting, Josh. I'm signed up right now for a history degree. Master of Applied Sciences in History. And I had a co-worker come in and say, why are you signed up for this course? And I said to him, because everything is interesting to me. So, and those two things are also interesting to me. I mean, if I can try, we can go, we can address, try and address both in a short way. And then we see if we continue with those, go to others or go deeper on those. So it, all of these sort of like, these the political ideas originate for me with John Stuart Mill and the description of liberty, which is that every person, individual, should be free to decide to do whatever the hell they choose, provided it doesn't impinge on other people's ability to do the same thing. So anything, everything that is within our personal domain is our free choice and ought to be our free choice. And as you so well put, there is so much that we care about that impinges on other people. And in some cases, just a straightforward negative, like if we smoke or if we create a large amount of noise that other people don't care for. And in other cases, it's that we all care about it slightly differently and we need to find the trade-offs and find a common agreement that minimizes the downside for everyone in aggregate. And I can tell you that I wish... I could talk and, you know, I could teach people in the two of the world's leading democracies, the United Kingdom, the United States, which are, it's extraordinary for me, for people to say that they're the world's leading democracies, as I just did, because I feel from the perspective of Switzerland that they function beyond imperfectly for the simple reason that what you're, there's a complete unawareness in the vast majority of the populations of those two countries that it's not just alternating elites or picking who's going to be your dictator for four years or for five years, who's going to be an elected president with a huge amount of power. There's a whole element to democracy, which is, I believe, to a well-functioning democracy, which is figuring out at what level decisions ought to be taken with the idea that you want to push decisions out to the lowest level of political organization that can competently take the decision. So you're talking about arrangements in an apartment building in a in an apartment building in downtown New York, which doesn't affect anybody else. 
It should be the inhabitants of that apartment building that decide those arrangements, whether to spend more money and have flowers in the lobby or to spend less money and not have flowers in the lobby, where to spend more money and have a combined heating unit for the whole building or to spend less money and, you know, whether to allow air conditioning or not. And in so many cases, it's so easy to see that the decision making is not happening on the right unit in the right level. So an example in the UK would be that too many decisions regarding transportation infrastructure are taken out of the transportation ministry in London. And many of those decisions ought to be taken on a more regional basis. Citizens in a local area know how they want the roads to work. They know if it makes sense to make a road a one way or not, or whether you want traffic calming measures in a certain area or not. And I've seen at least on one occasion, which affects me personally when I go visit my parents, where the whole, the, all of the people in the area don't like the decision that was taken, but it was taken at the transportation ministry, or it was taken at the wrong level, the wrong political unit. And that goes also for, you know, you can go up to, I mean, I think an issue that concerns you and should concern all of us is that we don't have a political decision-making unit that functions effectively to take decisions for the planet. And there are many decisions that we have to take together as a planet. We cannot, and there's no question that if the Earth was threatened by an asteroid hurtling towards it of the size that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, so it could possibly cause the extinction of human beings as a species, no question that ad hoc, the world's nations would come together and take decisions about how to stave off this terrible threat. But there are many threats that we face today that are not, we don't have a, a body in order to take those decisions. And just to get on to something that is relevant in the UK is that you have a whole bunch of people who believe that they want the United Kingdom to be sovereign and free from the European Union. And I don't understand, or I wish I could push a button and help those people to understand that this is not about whether the UK is part of the EU or not, whether it's sovereign or not. No country is sovereign in deciding the quality of their air. Air flows freely around the world, so you're practically not sovereign in that case. And the question is always, where does the decision need to be taken? At what political level? And then how do it, because that's where we can aggregate up the right decision. So politics is about so much, first of all, Democracy is not about majority rules. It's about in a decision-making body, even when the majority wins, it's about protection of the minority interest. The minority view needs to be heard. The minority needs to be protected. But it's also, politics is also about deciding where decisions should be taken. A decision to centralize power inappropriately is as much a political decision that can go right or wrong as deciding which person should be president. And so I would tell you that the UK and the United States Two quote leading democracies have a long, long way to go. And the US has got, you know, the fact that many decisions are taken by states rather than the federal government is a good thing. That's way better than a unitary state like the United Kingdom. But there's, you know, it's far more variegated than that. There should be decisions that are pushed way down into communities, just as there are decisions that should be pushed up by the states. The US is way too centralized. I mean, I could talk for hours on this, as you can see. So I'll bring myself to a close here by saying that. For your interest, there's a rule in Switzerland, which will interest anybody who pays taxes in the US to the federal government, that the only the federal government does not have the right in Switzerland to levy income taxes on the citizenry. So the only political units that can levy income tax on the citizenry are the local municipality and the the canton, which is the equivalent of the state. So there's a 
an answer or a response to your participatory democracy. And there was a second one that I've lost myself on, which was, oh, being nice and succeeding. I mean, you know, it's just sounding different than typical people who are investors. I mean, I think that, you know, somebody I read just the other day, the other day, today or yesterday, that being nasty is not a good business strategy. You're not going to be very successful in life if you don't seek to be pleasant and seek out pleasant people. And so I think that being nice or talking maybe the way I do is actually just a case of long-term greedy. So it's actually, you know, and we see that with Warren Buffett. I don't fully, I mean, I do know, and it's funny because we talked about that first chapter in the book. And so there was this kind of decision that I made, and it would be interesting to figure out how and where it came, where I felt like I had a choice between telling the truth, that truth that I wrote in the book, being open about this terrible career mistake that I'd made, but potentially jeopardizing my future in finance. Because I knew people who'd come from that firm who just erased it from their CV and didn't talk about it because they mm-hmm. felt like it would be damaging to their career prospects. So I had a choice between, I felt like in that moment, I had to choose between honesty and I, I either I wrote honestly and included it in the book, in which case I might be jeopardizing my future in business, or I write about it or choose not to write about it to kind of like be dishonest by choosing not to disclose in which case I would have compromised on my truthfulness and honesty with the world and potentially have a better business career, more prospects in business. And the the world's uncertain, but I certainly chose in that moment, I said, I am going to tell the truth about this and let the cards fall where they fall. And yeah, it's a profound decision, not just for that specific decision, because once you do it once, you become more capable of doing it again. And I think that at the time, I was hugely influenced by two books, which I can very, very strongly recommend. One is by a guy called David Hawkins, Power Versus Force, talks about truthfulness and powerful the truth is. And somebody who lives in truth and lives a truthful life has power, whereas the best you can do if you live an untruthful life is manipulate the world through force. As one fine fellow called Vladimir Putin is discovering, force has its limits. But power in a certain way is unlimited, and truthfulness is one of the ultimate powers in life. So power versus force really influenced me. And there's a shorter book by Sam Harris that basically says the same thing. It's, I think it's called On Lying. Very, very short book, easy to read. And then the other book that really influenced me, and I'd read it five years after I'd bought it, and I'd bought both these books after having my first meal, sit-down meal with Monish Pabrai, And that book is the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. And so the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi, the title is my autobiography. And then the subtitle is the story of my experimentations with the truth. And this is not truth, does one plus one equal two? Or did he say what he had for breakfast this morning? This is truth. Is it almost like, think of it as kind of a deity. And as you throw things out into the world, if they are true, they will stick, and they will become more powerful. And if you throw out things out to the world that are not true, then they kind of collapse and crumble. And so I'm reading this book. And just to give you a little bit of a, I mean, it still blows me away to bring it up. And I've brought it up many times. Within the first 70 pages, you discover that Gandhi going up in a Hindu family, devout Hindu family, tried meat 
Annette Meat, even though that is a profound sin. And in his autobiography, he writes about it. And then, which was even more shocking for me, he talks about going and visiting prostitutes. And this is his autobiography. And I remember the person I was at the time saying, wow, how on earth did he decide to put this in? He could have left it out. And But there's a sense of trust that you gain in somebody like Mahatma Gandhi in the book that you're reading when you see that kind of dedication to telling the reader the full story. And I kind of, so those two things helped me get to that place with writing my book and knowing that I wanted to put that in there. And once it starts, then you be empowered to do more of the same thing, actually, because it kind of feels good. It's scary, but it kind of, not that it feels good, but you see that, so you become more aligned, basically. And this is what kind of happened to Warren Buffett. I don't know exactly how it happened with him, but when you become aligned in that way, I think most people feel like they just cannot do it. They cannot afford to do it. But it's something incredibly liberating at an investor meeting when somebody asks a question and looking at them saying, I really don't know the answer to that, or to say, mm. that's a great question and I struggle with it. Here's how I'm trying to answer it. And I remember the first time I did it with somebody who said, well, what's your cell discipline? You know, and so for those who are not investors, you, you buy something, hopefully the fairy tale story is everything you look at, everything you buy goes up and then you sell it and you make money and you continue on to the next thing. The fairy tale sometimes happen, but it often doesn't. And within the industry that I'm in, people talking about having a sell discipline, when do you sell something? And when people get asked this question, they will come up with all sorts of fancy answers. And I kind of spoke the honest truth, which was, you know, I find it incredibly difficult because it's really hard to decide when to sell something for all the following reasons. And it's really fascinating what happens when you do that, because in the room, people are saying, yeah, actually, all those other people who claim to have a sell discipline don't really know what they're doing. They're just selling me a, a string of yarn. And so that feels really good because you get some people in the room who are expecting you to look like you know, and to make, and even if you don't know, to pretend you know. And they, of course, are disappointed. But you get the 5% of the people in the room who are like, my God, for the first time I've heard somebody talking sense to me. And in the first room, it's 5%. In the next room, it's another 5%. And another room, it's another 5%. And suddenly, my ecosystem is very different to the ecosystem of many people around me. And so it seems to me that if you want to live that kind of truthful life, you kind of just have to start taking baby steps way, way back. And you cannot push it. And the process of becoming more fully aligned with oneself and becoming more truthful is not a switch that goes on and off. It's something that happens slowly, little piece of bravery by little piece of bravery. But there's, there are plenty of moments. I mean, I've been married now for 20 years where it's like, I need to tell this to my wife. I need her to know this about me. And it's kind of scary because you don't know what the relationship will be like afterwards. So the, this is happening all the time in all sorts of ways. So it comes down for me that I'll give you another example. And for those of you who are not watching the video, Josh is not making signs that he wants me to stop talking, so I'll continue. So I'm a scatterbrain, and I'm not very good with keeping appointments because I forget. It's not like I want to diss the person that I've got an appointment with. I'm way better now because I have people who help me and support me in it. But every now and then, I'll miss an appointment. And I have found that when I'm brutally honest. So I don't give some story like I forgot it was in the diary, the car broke down, I couldn't. I give the honesty of what actually happened. 
there's a way in which you know I've arrived late to a meeting. I mean, it happened multiple times where I just say, you know, I'm so sorry. I am a scatterbrain. I idiot thought that leaving, you know, 15 minutes before this meeting started would be enough time for me to get there. And it's not like I haven't made this mistake in the past. I've done it in the past. I really should have left myself three quarters of an hour. Of course, with 15 minutes, I was never going to get here on time. And I'm so, so sorry. And that they still don't like the fact that I was late to the meeting, but there's a sense that you get that, that there's a part of our body brain physiology that goes strong. And this is these are David Hawkins' words from Power Versus Force that knows that the truth is being told. And that gives people confidence that this is somebody that they want to deal with, even though he just arrived late to the meeting, you know? So in describing the differences between you and a typical finance person, if that's a fair characterization of that community, a set of communities, you're, you've talked about niceness and you've talked about truth and honesty. There's another big piece of it, which is reflective reflection, thoughtfulness, introspection, yeah. personal growth, and looking inward. I mean, it's not only looking inward because you definitely talk about your relationships with others. Yeah. Actually there, it's also other people as opposed to other numbers. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about the... And also the honesty, you're talking about honesty to others, but I read an honesty with yourself. Yeah. And Richard Feynman says, we're the easiest ones to fool is ourselves. Yeah. And for me, my a lot of people look at what I'm doing. Okay, he unplugs his apartment. He unplugs his fridge. He, you know, doesn't fly. And they're like, well, individual action doesn't really matter. And to me, that's like, the way I often put it is like, that's like looking at Yo-Yo Ma practicing the cello and saying, why are you playing all those scales? No one wants to hear play scales. What's the value in scales? Yeah. No one goes to Carnegie Hall to see someone perform scales, but the way you get to Carnegie Hall is by playing the yeah. scales. But the point is only partly the actual, like the muscle memory of like where to put your fingers and so forth. It's also, what do you do when you feel like giving up? What do you do when you bomb a performance? What do you do when someone else plays better? What do you do when you get injured? And yeah, you have to do those things and then you have to be honest with yourself or else you're just talking about music appreciation, which is lovely, yeah. but not actually, in my case, sustainability leadership or in your case, I'm not sure because I think of, are you in, a, in the education of a value investor? So you, you identify yourself as a value investor, but I think of, I don't think, I think of you as the quest for wealth, wisdom, and enlightenment. I feel like you're someone on this quest as well. Yeah. I think you've picked things that not many people say, I am, I'm wise. I'm enlightened. It's why the people who are wise and enlightened wouldn't say that they're wise and enlightened. The yeah. people who are wise and enlightened will say, I know nothing and I have a long way to go to enlightenment. But uh, so this other focus, this inward focus, the yeah. honesty with yourself, the introspection, is that common? I mean, I, there's so much. There's so much that I want to say to that. So I can start with, in response to you. So another, actually, it's interesting, it comes from Mahatma Gandhi, is I think that it's he who said, be the change that you want to see in the world. And he very much, I mean, he lived a life that I'm sure you would admire. I mean, he he knew that if he wanted Indians to be nonviolent and not fight each other, he had to be nonviolent himself. And he took that to an extreme. I mean, he did not want to kill an insect. He didn't want any animal to be killed on account of his appetite. I mean, he really, but he knew that the change 
started with him. So, you know, Gandhi then... I have to interject here also because my father studies Ahmedabad, India, which is where his ashram was. Yeah. And so I've been there and he cleaned the toilets when it was his, you know, everyone took their turn. How many world, if it's fair to call him a world leader, how many world leaders yes. clean toilets of other people's toilets, you yes. know, that other people use? That's to me and, tremendously, yeah. And you remind me of another part, another aspect of his personality in the book where he joins the Indian Congress party and he's there to serve. And he's there, he will sweep the floors, clean the toilets, help them get dressed. Whatever it takes, no task is too menial for him because he's there to serve the cause. And, you know, I'm reminded by, it's not, Monish has said it to me, he's quoting somebody else, I believe. There's no limit to what you can do, what you can achieve if you don't care who takes the credit. And so Gandhi got to that place at a very early stage. The second thing I go to, and I think it's John Wooden, I'm not sure, a very, very famous American coach, where, uh, you know, they would focus, he would focus with his team on things like how to put your socks on. Yeah. How to tie your laces. The first, and that's with the best high school, the best recruits in the world, in the nation. Yeah. They know how to, you know, in principle they know, but yeah. And the, the third place that I will go, which is perhaps a little esoteric for some of the people listening in, is is the world of Jewish halakha, where, you know, the rabbis, the wise sages of the Jewish world, wanted the Jewish people and all people to live in a certain way, to live in an enlightened way. And there sort of educational method, if you like, or the way to get on the path to enlightenment was to get small steps. So many of the kind of like the precepts are not the end goal. They're just to get you going in a particular direction. I mean, one that is close to my heart is that the keeper of a household, it's usually attributed to the female, but if there's no female in the household, then a male should do it. And there's no reason to make it sexist, should light candles on a Friday night. But, you know, I don't think that many people realize, even people who live within that world, that the point was not just lighting the candles. The point is to beautify the home. Take a moment to say, let's make the place where I live beautiful. And there, are, so these kind of, they get these halakha or precepts where they want you to start doing the right thing, like John Wooden putting the socks on. So what you're doing, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And by the way, when I don't know what to do, people think that I have a grand plan often in the office and I just go to writing thank you notes. And in a certain way, it's like, you know, go and put some love in the world, go and create some good feelings in the world on a retail basis. Yeah, you know, I have no idea whether I'll deliver outsized returns to my investors or I'd hope to, and I work at it. But you know, if I go home having brightened somebody's life, then that's a good thing. And so that's all in the same direction. And then I wrote another note here, which completely escapes me because I can't read my own writing, which is so sad. But yeah, so I'll stop there and see where you go because I can't read my note. <laughs> okay, I want to go back to the first thing we talked about, which was the participatory democracy. And because I want to use that to transition to the environment if we can. That yeah. You mentioned John Stuart Mill. And I think of yeah. Locke as I associate Locke with uh, life, liberty, and property Government has a role in protecting these things. And to me, pollution, ipso facto, destroys life. It destroys liberty and destroys property. Yeah. And so how – and you talked about is, – it may be that there is no – it's not possible even in, in principle to have a governing body globally for things like the – I mean the environment in general, the atmosphere, the oceans. And yet we may not be able to regulate it. 
it's possible that regulating it would create such a great central authority that it would be worse to have that than not to have it. And yet, if we don't do something, the indicators are pretty clear of warming and plastic pollution and PFAS and all sorts of deforestation, things like that. So to me, there should be much more say of people affected by decisions. I mean, I can now choose to do lots of things that pollute that someone far, far away will be intimately affected by. I mean, people are dying by the millions now from behavior that people that we're doing today and people have done in the past, totally legal so far, yeah. and yet destroys life, liberty, and property. And it's a big challenge. I mean, I yeah. certainly have my thoughts on it. I'm curious if it's something you've thought about because it sounds like something you've thought about. I think that one of many models that one can have, I mean, we were just talking earlier about noise pollution. There's a concept in economics called the tragedy of the commons. And so we solved the tragedy of the commons in many places. I mean, commons, the commons was a common area. And the problem was that common area wasn't being kept the way it ought to be kept. And some combination of political organization to have common decision making to make rules and also dividing those property, the commons up into individual properties, because once if you can divide it up into units of property that people can take care of, then they also take care of it. We have no problem getting people to take care of their cars and their personal possessions of any kind of their homes when they own them. There are solutions to the tragedy of the commons through property rights and through, through political organization. The issue that we come across in many environmental matters is that the commons is global in this case. We're, we're actually on spaceship Earth. And just as we think that we're, we're frustrated with the progress we're making on political organization, some regressive, retarded dictator decides to actually launch a war to invade one country from another as if achieving your goals through physical violence is going to achieve anything. And you just want to sort of like sit down in front of him and say, what are you thinking? It's just beyond me that we're in Europe as well. People are trying to achieve their goals through violence. It's just utterly beyond me. But I think that, yeah, so it's the tragedy of the commons. The challenge is absolutely enormous. But even if we had a, if we take the example of how to use Bellevue, the town square, how many days a year it should be given over to being covered with a village or whatever else it is, an event, a circus, and how many days a year it should be empty. There's still a lot of difficult trade-offs that one has to make. And in the case of the environment, we have the tragedy of the commons. We haven't solved that problem. And even if we solve that problem, there are some very difficult trade-offs that we have to make that were brought into the clear for me. They were, they were brought into the clear for me in not such a good way through exposure to Bjorn Lomborg's ideas, although Bjorn Lomborg's ideas are valid, they're a little strident, but far more so when I read another book by a guy called Vaclav Smil, which gives some a sort of like reality into sort of like the kinds of trade-offs that if we had a global body, we would have to decide whether or not to make. So we've emitted, I don't know how much, CO2, I'm not going to start giving tonnage numbers since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That's when we started having a huge impact on the CO2 in the atmosphere. I can take you through, from my perspective, why it's really, really important to bring those CO2 levels, we stop adding to them, and then bring them down to where they were when the Industrial Revolution started. And I can give you the reasons for that. Right now, 
if we wanted to do that, it would cost about, based on napkin calculations with a friend who knows a lot about this, it would be about 20 times global GDP. So we'd have to spend, we'd have to give up everything and just spend on that, which is a trade-off is like the end of civilization period, or it's just not, not physically possible. So we don't have right now a means to just suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere, certainly not in a year, not even in 20 years. And we'd be spending, there'd be no food, there'd be no fuel, there'd be no anything. But then even if, if we set that aside, so we, we're unable to remove the CO2 that we've put into the atmosphere, if we decided to go carbon neutral, well, there are so many things right now that we produce that we can only produce by emitting carbon dioxide. And we have to make the trade-offs as to how much of them we want as a society. So do we want concrete buildings? Do we want steel bridges? Do we want plastics? And not just the plastics that pollute the environment, the plastics that perform all sorts of surgical tasks, catheters, all sorts of things that enhance human life and enhance longevity and all sorts of things. So what's my point? My point is that those trade-offs are very difficult trade-offs, not easy to make, even in the world's best functioning democracy. There'd be huge debates because different people would fall out in different places on that equation. I guess in a, to sort of like not lose you or the listenership completely, the environment is a wicked, wicked, wicked problem, wicked problem. And I'll just give one thing, one shift that has happened for me is that I'm a sort of like my natural political habitat was right wing, small government, republic, government expenditures, way less than 50% of GDP, low taxation, all those good things. And one of the things that happens with the environment is that the solutions have to be global. The solutions have to be through collective action. And so somebody who's a free market thinker immediately gets fearful of collective action because they immediately start thinking socialism, communism, they start thinking all sorts of things that they're politically against. And it takes a while. And I remember a conversation with my father where he had that reaction. I said, you know, it so happens that this is a problem that requires collective action. You can be a free market thinker. Yeah, but a free mar even free market thinkers don't think that we should privatize justice. Free market thinkers don't think that we should privatize defense of the United States, say, if you're living in the United States. Free market thinkers don't think that we should privatize the maintenance of the quality of the water supply that we drink and that we shower with. They all go, oh, yeah, absolutely. That has to be controlled. That has to be run by central authority. We don't want five generals walking around with five different ways of defending the country. And the environment is one of those things. But there's this huge suspicion that this is actually overreached by a federal government, which it could also become. So anyway, wicked, wicked problem. And it's funny, you have to do something. You can't, I agree with you, there's just going back to Gandhi, you can't do nothing. You just can't do nothing. And, and it's individual choices, what you do. But actually, this came out, I think that I'm not sure when we spoke, but this came out in my annual report where I realized the words that were used in my annual report, they're actually they weren't my, they, I wrote the letter and then with the help of my friend, William Green, he came up with this phrase, which is a well-known phrase, a coalition of the willing. And we're not going to get governments to take action for all the above mentioned reasons. Individuals have to take action in a certain way. And, but in the letter, what I write is that more than anything, corporations need to take action. 
and need to take action where they have free choice to take action or not, which is kind of a weird thing. Because what you kind of expect of corporations is that they should abide by the law and maximize their profits, and therefore everything will be fine. That was the old model. That's Milton Friedman. And actually, funnily enough, it's a guy who's now who was German, who's now become Swiss, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, who he started talking about stakeholder capitalism. And in a certain way, I was pulled kicking and screaming to to a view of the world where, no, the role of the CEO is not is not to maximize profit solely. The role of the CEO is to maximize some version of all the stakeholders' interests in the long-term interests of the shareholders, perhaps. But yeah, so I'll stop yeah. there and see where you take me. I actually remember what I'd written down on the previous topic, if you want to go back there. Well, I do, but I'm going to keep going in this direction. Yeah, yeah. And there's a Milton Friedman quote that I put in my book of, I mean, there's a clear role for government to, I can't quote him perfectly, but say what the playing field is, to say these are the rules that we follow. Which is which comes from democracy, which comes from how we what we decide. We decide that child labor is not allowed. That's not something that we let the market decide. That we and Barry Goldwater as well did. I mean, very free market person, and he was very pro protecting the environment. And there was a lot of that, and I find it very compelling. I mean, I commend you. I think it was before we started recording that you were talking about change and how. People changing, and you're talking about your own personal change. And I, I appreciate your sharing what you were talking about. And speak about individual action. If it's okay with you, I want to do the Spodic method that I described to you before we started recording. Yeah, of course. So, when is the environment? I think I know the answer to this. Is the environment something that matters to you enough to act on it? I, I mean, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes, of course. So, when you think about nature. When you think about, like different people have different views of nature. We've all grown up in different ways and some people it's the beach or mountains or whatever. When you think of a, a nature scene or a quintessential moment of, in your life when you've been enjoying nature, what does nature mean to you? What does the environment mean to you? I guess I'll give two answers, if that's okay with you. On a very personal and visceral level, you know, I like to go out in nature and it's not the sole form of meditation, and I'm not trying to claim that being in nature is a substitute for uh, far more concentrated forms of meditation, but there is a sense of flow that occurs when I'm out in nature, and I love exercising in nature. My wife likes going to gyms. She does all sorts of different dance classes and cycling, and I, I would rather be less fit and be out in nature. And there's something to do with a thousand different things. So on a personal visceral level, this morning I was swimming across Lake Zurich and it was just spectacular. And, you know, when I go cycling, I was cycling over the weekend and I'm out in the countryside. I'm out in the environment. There's something just so unbelievably special. And I used to think that I would have loved to have been a, a forester, a forestry man, because it would have me outside all the time. So, you know, that's what nature means to me personally. There's also, we call it planet Earth, but we really ought to call it spaceship Earth. It's our only home for all of Elon Musk's incredible work. We're not going to get to Mars anytime soon. Personally, I don't want to live on Mars, and I don't want anybody that I love and care for to live on Mars. And living on Mars is not going to save us from the end of the sun anyway. And so this is where we are, and we are not 
So we are, everybody in investing knows this idea of the boiling frog because Charlie Munger's talked about it. An asteroid coming for Earth that will extinct us is not a boiling frog. That That is a very clear and present danger. But the fact that the environmental unfolding is happening at a far slower pace does not make it any less threatening. In fact, it's so nuclear power plants are very scary to people because they might blow up and release a whole bunch of radioactive material into the atmosphere like Chernobyl, for example, but they're not systemic. Uh, Somebody building a nuclear power plant cannot destroy the planet. The problem with what we're doing in, you know, call it climate change, is that it is systemic. And something that is worth saying, with the greatest respect to Al Gore and greatest respect to his intentions, there were claims that he made in his famous talk that struck me as being going way beyond what the conclusions that one could draw. And so I think that he did a disservice because he was making claims with certainty of what will unfold, which he was in no way able to make. But here's the really, really important point is that we don't know how the climate will unfold. We don't know what impact we're having on the atmosphere or on the world. We know that our impact is huge and is life on planet Earth. If you read a history of planet Earth, planet Earth is a billion years old. Sorry, the planet Earth is 5 billion years old. The first billion years of planet Earth are called the boring billion. Not much happened. But then things started to happen, including the formation of an atmosphere. I don't remember exactly when the simplest life forms occurred. The atmosphere and the climate on Earth and the upper crust of the Earth has been changing continuously for the last 4 billion years. The difference today is that one species has been having an increasing and outsized impact on the evolution of the planet. And the conservative principle says to me that we need to dial ourselves back as a species to go back to having a the same impact on the planet as we were having, say, three or 400 years ago. And we still don't know how the earth will evolve. Uh, we, uh, this is where I come from. I don't in a certain way, to take the stance that I'm taking does not require me to have to be a climate scientist and to have predictions about what the temperature of the planet will be. The key is to not have to not first do no harm. Don't do any damage. Don't do irreversible damage that we don't understand. And we don't understand it. And we might be doing irreversible damage. And therefore, we need to stop. And that is kind of utterly clear to me. I'm somebody who supports nuclear power because it's not systemic. I'm not saying that I like nuclear power, but if we need to do use nuclear power to reduce carbon emissions, we should use it because it's not systemic. Whereas allowing the climate to continue to change, allowing us to have an increasing impact on the planet, we just don't know where it will go. So I, I don't know if that's the personal and the global. You have the two directions. I'd like to focus. I mean, I could go in either direction, but I'd like to focus on the personal. Yeah. And you talked about meditation in nature, physical being in nature as giving you something. And I wonder, did you discover what nature did for you? Was there like an early experience that you had? I want to go for a specific instance where you, what you said about your experience in nature, say meditation or exercise. Yeah. Do you remember where that came from? 
Well, you know, I, one of the guys I was with this morning, so we did a group swim across the Lake of Zurich, about one and a half kilometers, just glorious. And one of the guys with us was a triathlete. And another guy was a doctor. And after the triathlete left, the doctor made this speculative claim that all extreme athletes have a mood disorder and they self-medicate with the extreme their extreme athleticism. And so I can say that as a young child, as a teenage child, I, I suffered from seasonal affective disorder, which in winter months, if you're not exposed to enough sunlight, you kind of become sort of semi-depressed or I would become semi-depressed, very lethargic and in a low mood. And if I could get outside for half an hour in the morning, that would take care of it. That would put me in a completely different state of mind. So I think that I started developing a connection to nature when I realized that it, it had this sort of calming effect on me, if you like. And for me, it's not being out there looking at trees out on a terrace. It's running, swimming, cycling. I mean, one of the most extreme enjoyments of nature for me has been actually, most recently, I experienced nature in a new way when I went on a, I did a swim run. And there's a Swedish term, Ötilö, which island to island. So this is a kind of a race that, a type of racing in which you run and swim with a partner and sometimes swim long distances. And the experience of sort of like the sun and the sea and the water and the reflections when you're doing a swim run is something that is just really, really special. A little bit what it's like to be windsurfing. And I used to windsurf when, as a teenager again. And you have the sea and you have the waves and the wind and you're struggling with the wind and the waves. And there's a beautiful movie called A River Runs Through It that I haven't seen for a long time. But in that movie, there's a kind of uh, fishing is something that people come back to. And it, clearly people who go fishing, especially fly fishing, experience that same sense of flow. So that's what nature, how nature is meditative to me. And I think I started experiencing it as a teenager. So can you take me to one of these times as a teenager when you were out? It sounds like wherever you were, but what do you see and hear and touch and smell when you've walked outside, maybe in the winter? Another interesting thing for me, which is the same idea, is I've rarely gone camping. And I don't know, Josh, you'll tell me in a second your experience is camping, but it's not like I'm a big fan of sleeping in a tent. I like my comfortable bed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, you're not a fan of t being in a tent? Oh, I'm actually not a, not a fan of sleeping in a tent. No, I, I like my creature comforts. I like the soft pillow and all of those things. But there's something that happens. There's something that is deeply archetypally evolutionary when you're out in the fresh air for more than just a few hours, that there's a whole way in which I exist in the world that changes. And actually talking to you makes me think that I should go camping more often. But it's also happened to me when I've played 18 holes of golf, not that I'm a big golf player or a regular golf player. It's this being out in nature for a long time. But you know what happens when you go camping is you're out in nature, but you also have the sunset and the sunrise, and it's right there in front of your face. You don't have to go outside to find it. You reminded me of the last time I went camping, which was last fall. And I went biking. I said, and I just recently got a tent. And I got a flat tire towards the end of the day. I wasn't anywhere close to the distance I wanted to go. And I was like, oh, this is... And I felt so bad. I felt like, not bad, like futile, like giving up, exasperated. And I hadn't fixed a flat tire in a long time. I hadn't gone bike camping since the 80s. And... So my skills are really low. Like back in the day, I would just open it, fix the tire and go on. 
But then I fixed it. And the next day when I started writing, like actually before I went to sleep, I tested it and the fix wasn't holding. It was leaking still. But that was with the tube not in place. When I put the tube back in the tire and put it back on the next morning and started riding, I thought it would deflate, but it didn't. So it held. And over the course of the next day, I felt so my confidence built and built and built and built. And I realized the worst that I'd felt the night before, the that much better I felt for my capability of having actually solved this problem that I thought ruined it. And I'm not going to say it was like the trip of a lifetime, but it was certainly a refreshing. It's definitely not comfortable. Yeah. But I really am glad. I, it's better for having had that flat. If yeah. I hadn't had that flat and I hadn't gone to sleep with it feeling like, with myself feeling like, oh, my skills are low. I don't know what to do. All right. So in your case, what are the emotions? Can you name some of the emotions you feel when, after you had the shift, when you've been out there for long enough? I think that the best is that Czech philosopher that, whose name we, none of us can pronounce. Is this idea of flow, just being in flow. Czech sent me high. Yeah. yeah. There you go. You said it. So I've practiced. Maybe, you'll, maybe I'll learn to say it one day, but I'll pause and you can say it for the listener. Go on. Well, I say it as chick sent me high because someone wrote down chick sent me high and that's what I say. So I don't know if it's yeah. right, but that's... Yeah, sounds good to me. If there's ever branding through complicated spelling, he's got it. So it's a feeling of flow. It's, I wouldn't say... I mean, yeah, it's a feeling of flow. And look, I can't generalize because sometimes it's bloody cold. Sometimes I got the sads on the bicycle. For those who don't bike, the sads is when you go out on an enthusiastic bike ride and suddenly you realize, I realize that I want to be home and comfortable, but I'm miles away from anywhere. And the only way to get somewhere, and maybe there's a wind that started up and maybe there's rain as well. And the only way to get somewhere is to keep cycling. And it's sad. <laughs> so the emotions are varied, but there's this feeling of just being there, you know, being there. So Based on the flow I heard was the big one and yeah. being there in the moment, I invite you, if you're up for it, to think of something to do to act on those feelings, to bring about those feelings in your day-to-day -day life. It could be once or it could be for long term. And I want to clarify something that almost everyone hears that I didn't say. I'm not saying what's something you can do to help the environment. It is not about fixing the environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, John Wooden, you know, we're not focusing on the score. We're focusing on ourselves and doing the best we can. Yeah. And if you're up for it, with three constraints, one is something that you do yourself, something that, you, that you're not already doing, and something that it doesn't – it's not something you have to measure, but it just has to have some physical component so you can say, I left it better than I found it in some way. So not just reading a book or watching a documentary. Yeah. And – if you're up for it, and you might have already answered the question because you hinted at something that you were thinking about doing. But uh, usually at this point, if people are up for it, it takes five or 10 minutes of like going back and forth. Some people actually are just like, oh, I know what I want to do. I've been meaning to do this for a while. Yeah. Want to give it a shot? Well, I'll try and see if it meets with muster. So the first thing I wanted to share, but it's something that I already do, is when I took the decision that I would rather be outside and have a less high quality workout than be in a gym and have a higher quality workout. So I accepted that trade-off and we'll go for a run. We'll go rowing sometimes, we'll go swimming, but I try to favor outside workouts. And so once I've taken that decision, I think I get outside and it's and for me, 
unless I'm writing, the first thing I do is exercise in the morning because that's when my willpower is the highest. It's the most likely I'll get it done. And life is better if I'm exercising. You know, I aim for seven days a week, which means that I get, you know, these days I'm really good. It's getting up to seven, but five days a week. So I miss two days. But something that this is something to do with my wife. So this kind of like classic evening and, and we've got a home that's emptying out of children as they go off to boarding schools and universities is that we have dinner and then maybe we go and do emails separately and then we'll go and watch TV together. And what I'm and I think that she signed on for it is that first of all, I do anyway stay with her in the kitchen to clean away the dishes and all of those things. And I never do as good a job as she can do. So I try to be a helpful hand. But, you know, even if I wipe the table, I'm not going to wipe it the way she wants it wiped. And but there are ways to help. And I keep her company. And then once she's done, so the kitchen's all set, we go outside for a walk. And what I've asked her to commit to is that the walk doesn't have to be a long walk. It could just be to the end of the garden and back or to the end of the street and back. But it is a walk. And it's kind of like a comma, a full stop to the dinner and the time together before we go on to email or watching television or whatever else we have to do. And again, there's something for me about being outside and there's something about for me about walking. I think that walking is the most incredible. There are books on walking, actually. And walking, again, is a sort of archetypal is I may probably misusing the word, but it. I think that what I'm trying to point out is that there are some activities that when we do them, activate deep evolutionary programming in us and there are ways in which it has an influence on us that we can't even begin to imagine and i think that walking is one of them being in nature is one of them i think that one of the things that this is one of the things that you're trying to get at with the spotic method which i appreciate is that we've been through a period of history that probably started with the industrial revolution but maybe before in which we in a certain way have become alienated as a species. We've be, become alienated for, from so much that what makes us the species that we are. And what I sense is that your desire to reconnect with those things. And one of the ways to do that is to connect to nature. So in a certain way, when we connect to nature, I'm kind of trying to take Josh's thoughts further. What we're actually doing is connecting to a part of ourselves that has been lost. When I go out in nature and I talk about being there and being in the flow, I'm connecting to parts of me that were lost because humans evolved into our mode of organization as humans turned through this industrial revolution, which removed us from so much that is natural and so much that is natural that creates certain states of mind that we've kind of lost and we need to reconnect with. I think that, and if I may, something that's really inspiring to me, you live in Manhattan, and even in urban environments, the, the regeneration of urban environments like the skyline, like the West Side Highway, and I've been experiencing in the UK now these, in London, there's very good cycle paths through London. Even in an industrial wasteland, you can recreate that sense of connection and rewilding, I guess. So, Yeah, you've picked up on some of it, and I can tell that you're participating in it and at a different level, observing it and thinking about it. And so part of it is that reconnection and because it's very, it's much easier talking about a commons to let go of a commons if you're not connected to it. And when you're, I mean, if you're actually there and your sheep are in the meadow, 
that it's much easier to deal with all the people around if we're all really connected. Whereas if I just say, well, you know, Jakarta is already a mess. I guess it doesn't matter if, we, if it gets a, more of a mess. Yeah. Another thing that you also hinted at, but I'll say more clearly, is when you talked about the emotions inside us, is a big focus on intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic. Yeah. Which is why I went in the direction of your personal experience rather than the other direction. Great point. And the other big thing is the experiential component. Yeah. Because you can talk about being sad on a bike. And when you talked about that, I thought of this other ride that I did when I ran out of energy with 20 miles and coming back 20 miles to go. And I've stuck my thumb out to get a, to try to get a ride. This was during the pandemic. Yeah. And there's a whole story around it. And it happened to be this luxury SUV, which didn't even slow down. And then I suddenly was like, felt so ashamed of myself. I was like, I'm riding. And there's, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I was in the lowest gear, right? I could walk faster than I was riding, but I had like all the stuff on the bike because it was really, all the panniers full. But eventually I made it. Like I said, you know, the old thing of what you do when you're on a long thing is like oh, one more mile, one more half mile, just to that tree. And you just keep going. And, just, and eventually I was like, I'm just going to get at least to the GWB, the George Washington Bridge, because I, I was in New Jersey. That'll get me to Manhattan and then I can take the subway home. And then when I got, it was getting dark out and as I got closer, there was more lighting because near the bridge, it's more urban. And then the bridge is flat. So of course I can get across there. And then I thought, no way am I going to go 90 miles and take the subway the last 10 miles and not do a century. And now the biggest part was when I got home, I rode home. It was much later than I expected. I was really beat. But I also realized that moment when I stuck my thumb out to try to hitch a ride, by getting home, I showed that I had what it took to make it. Yeah. And I had given up on myself when I had what it took. And that brutal honesty that was forced upon myself by myself. Yeah. That I, how many places have I given up in life when I had what it took to make it? Maybe it would have been, it wasn't pretty. I didn't look great when I came back. Anyway, yeah. so the experiential component is a big piece of it. So you talked about taking that walk with, and sometimes your wife joins you. And you said that's something you already do. I'm not sure if you wanted to augment that or do something else. It's actually, it's getting the habit of doing it with my wife so that she's bought into it. And so there's just a walk that happens after dinner as many times, or it, it should happen. There should be strong reasons why it doesn't happen. It's just, an, it, and part of that is, is yeah, just to be outside. And we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's summer right now here. The weather's most of the time beautiful. We'll see how it goes when it's raining and stuff like that. What I've learned from experience is that when someone commits a different person to something, uh, as long as you have to, we can't commit her to do something. So if, yeah, as you that's a great it, point. So I hear you. So yeah, and if she if failing to your point or to respond to your what you're asking for, and it's a great point, is for me to go on that walk and encourage her to join me. And but if she doesn't come on that walk, I can still go on the walk. Okay. It's a great point. That clarified it. And yes. were you already doing all those walks anyway, or would this be more walks than you would have done otherwise? No, actually, it's a great point that I was not doing those walks. And it's a great point that I could do them with her. You know? Sorry, that I can do them alone when she's not around. If she doesn't commit to doing it, I can still do it. So how long... I want to ask you to come back and share this experience. How many times over how long... Could we schedule, like, when could we schedule a second conversation if you're up for it to share how it went? I'm happy to, you know, it'll be your choice. I mean, what was the ideal interval? Well, it depends on the person because 
some people, I mean, it's how many times, if I ask you, how did it go? If you've done it once, probably not enough. And probably a year from now, you'll, you would have passed that a long time earlier. You'll email me and hopefully I'll have good results. And if not, you'll wait a little longer and your email will remind me if I've not yet, you've not made it happen in a proper way. So the your email will serve as a kind of a reminder plus. Okay. And I do remember that scheduling did take a while with you. So yeah. it's, so there'll probably be more walks with the wife than waiting to, or when we wait for that to happen. Yeah. Then I propose picking up here next time. Or it looks like you're about to, actually, I'm going to ask you, how do you think this experience will go? But what's your prediction ahead of time? I go on retreats with business friends, like forum retreats, and I'm very optimistic that it's going to have an incredible effect because what we've discovered is a group of activities. We've tried all sorts of group activities from riding horses in the mountains to, you know, none are coming up for me, but sightseeing to racing cars to museum visits. And we've discovered that simply going for walks, wherever it is, through the city, through the village, through the grounds, is just the most powerful thing to do. And so I think I have high expectations. This is kind of, in a certain way, very low-hanging fruit, if you like. It's very, very likely to yield extraordinary results, if you ask me. So A couple comments there. One is that I predict, even given what you've said, and even given your experience taking these walks with other in other contexts, that your experience will be better than you expect, even taking into account that I just said that, because <laughs> of the experiential part of it. Yeah. And also the low-hanging fruit part of it is that this low-hanging fruit, I believe, is available to roughly 8 billion people that we're kind of leaving it. Available to anybody who can walk, anybody who, is, who can locomote. And I've become acutely aware of that because there's a friend of mine from business school who very sadly suffered from a spinal injury that left her a quadriplegic and she does not have the ability to independently locomote. And so not every, all 8 billion, but everybody who's got use of their arms and has a wheelchair or better. And You're talking about the joy of the experience or the flow of the experience. I'm also talking about early steps to acting sustainably. And if people focus only on the magnitude of the first action, this is meaningless. Yeah. And I suggest that's not the way to look at it. That's like saying... John Wooden telling people how to put socks on yes. is pointless. Yes. But Kareem Abdul Jabbar, one of his great one of the great players who came out of his program, was like, that's really valuable. Yes. It's not to stop there. Yes. And by the way, this is Ned Hallowell on writing. But the way you write is you just start writing. <laughs> as simple as that. And you don't start thinking about oh, I'm procrastinating or I've got writer's block, or you just start writing. Even if it's your own name 18 times on the page, just start writing, you know? Yeah. So that's your point as well. I would tell you what, yeah. two things that come up for me. I hope I'm not out of line. So one of the things that, I mean, it's part of why I moved to Zurich is that nature is easily accessible here in a way that it's not accessible even in other parts of Europe. But when roads are built here, ancient pathways and animal pathways are preserved. So you have these kind of like streams that flow from the mountains, small hills and mountains around Zurich. And when urban development's taking place, the little valleys through which these streams go have been preserved. And so you have forested areas and you can run on paths next to these streams. 
the very, very middle of the city, which is just quite incredible. And it makes me so sad. I mean, two places that I visit often in the United States, one is Houston, because I have family there, and one is Omaha, which is where Warren lives in the Berkshire Annual Meeting. And you see that urban architects completely ignored the ancient pathways. And the ancient pathways are part of what make us human. And so here it's very natural. There'll be a highway, but there'll be the ancient pathway underneath will be preserved. There'll be a tunnel that preserves that route that humans and animals use. So, so many ways to connect to nature. So I, I, here's a point that I would make to you that I want to make this to all urban architects in the United States, especially, is that just because you're pouring concrete onto the geography doesn't mean that you can pour it willy-nilly. There are ways of pouring concrete, and there are ways of designing a concrete plaza, and you can design a concrete plaza that respects what was there before, and you can just design a concrete plaza that ignores what was there before, and the former is far superior and ought to be done, and I think is being done far more now. So point number one. I couldn't. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I couldn't help as, as you're saying that to test out as you're saying it, talking about pouring concrete, ignoring pathways. I was putting in the word neural in front of pathways for how we treat our psyche. And I think that we're doing a lot of not physical, well, physical architecture too, but also product development and markets. We're ignoring neural pathways. The, what you talked about earlier about our evolutionary, these deep things inside of us of say walking. Yes. Well, you know, there's so much of what was lost. We spend half our lives trying to forget what happened to us, but then we'll spend another half of our lives trying to remember and retrieve it, you know? And so we as a species have a lot to retrieve and, and to become whole. The second place I wanted to go was because it's just been in my mind and I think it's powerful and important is when you brought up at the beginning of this conversation, this power of reflection, or that I was a reflective person in the world of business. And first of all, you know, who's powerful? He who controls himself. I don't know what the exact words are, but at the end of the day, the only power that we have is over ourselves, which is to your point, I can't make my wife do anything. You wanted me to get a commitment of what I have the power to change. And at the end of the day, I have the power to speak. If I can choose the words that I speak. I have the power of my own action, my own thoughts and desires. So it just goes to this idea that we were talking about, be the change you want to see in the world. We have to start with ourselves. But but a second place that just is so powerful to me is that change doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't happen in a peaceable, quiet, happy way, I believe. Change happens because there is friction, because there is stress, because there is difficulty, because we run into problems. And when I see successful relationships between married couples, I think that what I see, I don't see endless harmony and love. I see a joy in the friction. And I see a dance between two souls who are still struggling with each other and fighting with each other, if you like. And so I think that there's this beautiful idea that whenever we run into friction, certainly with people in our family, loved ones, but I think probably with the world as well, this is an opportunity to learn and grow. What is this moment teaching me? Why am I experiencing this friction? Why am I experiencing the discomfort? But then, to your point, not to project onto my wife who has to come for a walk with me, 
but to, you know, what do I need to do? What work, what I like to call it homework. What homework do I have in this situation? What is my part of this? Because that's the part that I can change. And that's part of living a powerful, effective life, I guess. And it's so easy to blame everyone else. And I was getting into doing it. It's very kind the way you've redirected me. And it's interesting. So I hope that this is valuable and helpful. So there was a little moment of friction there. You know, Josh didn't like what I was saying. He was reacting badly because he's like, no, you don't, you don't get it. I don't want you to tell me what you're going to ask your wife to do. I want you to tell me what you're going to do. That friction resulted in you saying something that then resulted in friction with me because it was a challenge to me. And so that created, and that actually prompted the growth. It made me, reminded me that I can't, that, that what I really want, I have to do myself and invite my wife to join me, but not make my wife do it. That's not, so that idea in microcosm, which I thought was valuable, I wanted to bring to you. Yeah, you're picking up on so much about the Spodic method that uh, another big thing is the, the switch in the tone of the conversation from, I don't want to mischaracterize, but you particularly, but generally there's this abstract thing about like, this is what everyone has to do. And this is what, to what can I do and why I want to do it. Yeah. And it's a really big shift that is just the beginning, right? This is like, I often talk about in corporate speak, like a mindset shift followed by continual improvement. And it's, it doesn't feel like improvement if you haven't had the mindset shift. And this shifts the mind a bit and the heart. I mean, two stories for me, two small, yeah, it's just for like thoughts to take that with. And so first to, to go back to it's sort of like a, this is kind of a Jewish story. Don't ask me what exactly the original source is, but the story is there are all sorts of jokes that are told about so I'll tell the joke first, then I'll tell the story, and I'll tell something from my personal life. So the joke is, God's got these Ten Commandments, and he's going to various different peoples, and he's asking them, hey, would you? I got these Ten Commandments, would you like them? And so the story is that the French take a look, and they're like, oh, adultery, no, we can't, we need to be able to do adultery with French. And there are various other people who take objection to various different kinds, various different ones of the commandments. And the story is that he takes them to the Jews. He takes them to Moses, and Moses asks how much they are, and God says, well, they're free. And Moses says, well, then I'll take two, which is, give me anybody who is, feels like that is a racist joke. It, I'm sure that I, nobody will take offense, and you ought not take offense, but it, to the extent you do, forgive me. So now the story that's told is that other peoples wanted to ask what was in it, and what Moses said is the Hebrew words are naseh venishma. We will do, and then we will hear. And there's this idea in Jewish education, which is you get people taking the right actions, and then they will feel the spirit behind it. But don't expect people, don't wait until you understand the reasons why. Just start doing these precepts, and you will start feeling it. And a story from my own life that kind of plays in so much of what you're saying is that I figured this out with thank you notes, which I write about in the book at length. Mm -hmm. And these are small actions, individual actions. And I took those actions in a very self-serving way. I was totally interested in winning business and doing all those things, growing my fund and getting people to like me so that they would invest or so that. And over time, as I did it, my desire, the way I did it shifted. First of all, every time you write a personal note, you've got to think about who you're writing to and what you're going to say to them. And so every time I did that, it was like strengthening a muscle or rubbing some roughness off my heart. And I actually became more interested in the people that I was writing to and more interested 
in people in general. And when I started seeing the impact that these notes had on people, I started taking, I did it less for instrumental reasons to try and get a result. And I did it because I was just putting a little bit of joy into the world and more importantly, into my own heart as I did it. And so it's a similar idea of this kind of like changes occurring through these small actions, but even more exciting for you is that I had friends who were like, wait, so what you think the route to success in business is through writing these stupid thank you notes. And what are these stupid thank you notes? So what are you going to do? You're going to write five a day and what's that going to get you? And there's this cumulative effect of those things. As we've talked a little bit about the cumulative effect on, of them on me internally and shifts in the motivation for doing it. But over time, so you write, let's say, and I was doing this three notes a day, at the end of the day, five notes a week. That's, what am I talking about? 15 notes a week, 600 or so, whatever it is per year. And then after 10 years, you maybe got 6,000 of these things. And you can, there's somebody who's got a podcast called 1% Better. And you take 1% Better and you extend that out over a long time period. And suddenly it's way different to the person who was not doing 1% Better. And I think that your point is that individual action can lead to huge results over time if it's repeated. And I would also tell you that the individual action has to be sustainable, not in a planetary sense, but in an individual sense that you it has to be actions. And which is why I gave you the walk. It's got to be something. If I was to get, do some BHAG goal every night, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. It's just not going to happen. So yeah, two stories that I wanted to share. I hope those are helpful. They seem to kind of play into where this conversation has been. Yeah, this is the framework for, I think this is the groundwork for the next conversation. So I propose wrapping it up here and then picking up, yeah, continuing this conversation after these walks with or without the wife. Sure. Yeah. You've created another reason. I made a public commitment, haven't I? <laughs> That's part of the Spodic. I'll describe the steps of the Spodic method when we look back. and Because yeah. I'm teaching it to people and people are working on it and developing it and other people are doing it. And so teaching to teach and so forth. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we'll wrap up here and we'll pick up here next time. Yes. Guy Spear, thank you very much. Josh, thank you. And thank you for being willing to dart around where, wherever my brain has taken us. I found it fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 